the first time i saw a tiger pug mark in kaveri uh, landscape i was totally thrilled i can't explain the thrill and the joy i had and that's what you all work and survive for right Welcome to another episode of Rewilding the World with me Ben Goldsmith. Today I'm lucky enough to be with Sanjay Gubbi all the way from Karnataka in southern India. Uh, Sanjay is a conservation and rewilding hero in India. I was lucky enough to sit on a stage with him at an event organized by Elephant Family, which is part of the British Asian Trust, back in the summer to talk about human elephant conflict and some of the work that's going on in India to mitigate those problems. Sanjay, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. It's great to see you. It's a pleasure to be here on your podcast, Ben. An Indian friend once said to me that you really need two lifetimes, one to explore the world and another one just to explore India. In nature terms, in cultural terms, it is an absolute wonder, an extraordinary tapestry of different ecosystems and different species and so on. I've always found it astonishing that a country of 1.3 billion people and growing, a country that um, has so many mouths to feed, and so much space required by people, still manages to have so much wildlife. In almost every state and every part of India, you find an unbelievable array of wildlife and intact ecosystems. The question I have, Sanjay, is when you were growing up, to what extent did that pose difficulties for you, for your family, for the community you lived in? Was wildlife coexistence and conflict a big part of your upbringing absolutely i think for a lot of families a lot of people who grow up in in a country like india wildlife is part of your day to day life so if you even go into your every house in india has a small altar within the house so you'll have a god which is a snake god or you'll have a monkey god so wildlife is part of your daily life so you you it's also revered so that's more, very important that you grow up in the morning you go to the altar small altar within the house and you actually see wildlife without realizing that it's actually you're you're praying to a wild animal so there's so much of wildlife within you within your upbringing and within your culture you perhaps don't realize until you start working on wildlife conservation perhaps but also the tolerance levels you know i belong to a caste called jains and right from the uh, from the time we are born we are taught that we should not kill any kind of animal so even when you are a small kid if you try to squish a ant you get spanked on your bums you know uh, because the entire philosophy of the religion is non-violence it's it's the tagline of the religion is live and let live so it comes within you you're born with it so um, even the logo of the religion is um, a cow and a tiger drinking out of the same trough so you grow up with this kind of symbols so it gets imbibed into you very naturally then so how did you sanjay find your way into the world of proactive conservation what what was your career path I think sometime in the, in my high school days I was part of the scouting movement and uh, I used to go to nature I I mean scouting movement is all about outdoors you know I really owe a lot to Lord Baden Powell from the Brownsea Island you know he came from UK and he brought this movement into India and that gave a lot of young people and kids to go outdoors you know you're part of outdoors but to get exposed more and more to outdoors I think that's when I started picking up more about nature and my love for stargazing and then watching birds and camping outdoors i think that's where the first 
spark came up and then i picked up bird watching as a hobby um and um i went in to do my undergraduate in electrical engineering which i really didn't enjoy at some point of time i wanted to come back to wildlife conservation as a full time career and i worked for a few years and i didn't enjoy working as an engineer so i quit my profession and got back into wildlife conservation way back in 1990 as a full time profession and since then there's never been a dull day in my life <laughs> and did that career in conservation begin in karnataka absolutely and i i feel i'm going to continue in karnataka and i'll perhaps die in karnataka because conservation is not just about animals it's also about people it's about society you need to really understand a lot like i've watched a few episodes of you when you're talking about your farm about uk and you know the language you know the people you know the culture um you know people um and you need to understand the politics of the society you need to understand the politics of political leaders and so many other issues to be an effective conservationist so i think science is important for conservation but i think 90% is outreach 90% is communication to get changes on ground in conservation to be an effective communicator and to be an effective on ground changer for conservation it's it's very ideal that you work in your home state or in your place where you're born and brought up because a lot of doors open up for you just because you're from that place and you know you you know x y z and your family know is no name is known perhaps to a few people that opens up a lot of doors and people are more willing and accepting you as a conservationist and also to your ideas about conservation yeah i, I couldn't agree more um on the importance of working in the place that you really know and understand sanjay when we met you told me that you'd had a run in with a leopard during your time as a conservationist can you tell me a little bit about that yeah it's one thing which keeps uh, uh reminding me almost on a daily basis you know it was a leopard which had accidentally come into a school um about 6 uh, years ago i was called in by the authorities to capture the leopard and uh, ensure the safety of both the children and the leopard and in that melee uh, there were a lot of people who had gathered outside uh, there was media there was international media everybody out there so the entire incident is on on video unfortunately um, the leopard was very stressed and we were trying to capture him and i got in the melee you know trying to save children's lives you know i got caught with the leopard and uh, i was injured i had uh, about 44 stitches from that day and uh, it continued the impact continued but um, it was an experience where my second life perhaps started you know i had to rethink a lot about my own life after that experience where i saw the leopard roaring right into my ears a few millimeters away from my ears and uh, you see death uh, right there but um, i'll tell you when i saw the leopard at such close quarters i have not seen a better a colored i anywhere else in the world in yeah. that beautiful green colored of the leopard's eyes i can never forget it but it's just that the, i was injured because the animal was stressed at all that that's an extraordinary story sanjay my god thank god you're still with us <laughs> to what extent have the ecosystems of karnataka been degraded during your lifetime and and what have been the main causes of that degradation see it's a mixed bag some of the habitats have really gained like forest habitats have gained while grasslands and scrublands uh, thorny forests 
dry evergreen forest they have really degraded and one of the reasons why such habitats have degraded is because of lack of awareness about the value of these ecosystems both for wildlife and also for people while forest ecosystems in some way has uh, has benefited because there's a lot more awareness about saving forests about saving megafauna which are found in these forests like tigers and elephants and uh, leopards and uh, other megafauna but the same way other wildlife which are also critically endangered some of them are really in need of uh, conservation attention like the great indian bustard the indian wolf the F- bengal florican and other species uh, which survive in different ecosystems like grasslands have also degraded basically because of lack of awareness and loss of habitat and fragmentation even today these three are the biggest problems and especially lack of awareness the value of different ecosystems really need to be understood because nature is very complicated when i'm sure you know it very well we need several lifetimes and even within several lifetimes i don't think i can understand nature fully you understand a very small fraction of nature science is important like always i say uh, but the natural fabric of nature is very complicated and i think it's much much beyond science Sanjay, can you tell me a little bit about the precise landscape in which you're working? What's it called? What's unique about it? What are you doing there? We work in two different landscapes. One is the Western Ghats, which runs along the west coast of India. It runs for about 1,600 uh, kilometers all the way from the state of Gujarat down to the tip of the Indian subcontinent. But we mostly work in the state of Karnataka. And all along the Western Ghats, it's one of the biodiversity hotspots of the world. and it's got amazing uh, wildlife in it it's got one of the highest densities of certain species anywhere in the world right from uh, uh, endemic frog species to the asian elephants and within this landscape is also peppered with human habitations so you need to ensure that there's land security but also space for both people but very importantly also for wildlife that's one of the landscapes we work the other landscape we work is the deccan plateau which runs again uh, within several states of the country especially in the southern and central part of the country and this formed due to the volcanic eruption the, during the movement of the tectonic plates and uh, those are beautiful landscapes rocky outcrops uh, huge masses of granite and with scrub forest with dry deciduous forest and home to some of the amazing dry area wildlife species in this country so these are the two large landscapes we try to work and that's our that's where our focus is on wildlife conservation and the species that exist in those two landscapes are all still there i, I understand that india has had very few extinctions um, I, i read that the only mammal extinction is the malabar civet I wonder if that's correct or if you've had to reintroduce species at all. Yeah, we had the Malabar civet um, uh, which has gone extinct, but if you also to look at other species, we lost the cheetah, Asiatic cheetah way back in the uh, early 50s, very unfortunate. We also lost the Javan rhino. Uh we lost the uh, banteng in this country which used to survive in the northeast of this country. It's a wild cattle species. Uh, we have uh, the other wild cattle species which is called as the gaur which survives and continues to survive and thrive, but the ones which used to be in the Indo-Malayan realm 
the the banting unfortunately we lost it uh, post uh, just before independence around independence um, these are the major species which we lost uh, but of course we may not know or we may not have documented some of the lesser known species or the smaller fauna uh, if they have gone extinct and we don't know of course some of them we have, have been documented uh, like the pink headed duck uh, we lost and there are no records of it in the recent times but india overall has done quite well in my in my opinion about conserving a lot of wildlife species uh, but we still can do better and in, in the two landscapes where you're working in the western ghats mountains and in the deccan plateau have you already started to see an increase in abundance of some of the more charismatic species as a result of the mitigation of human wildlife conflict and increased protection for these lands and increasing the number of corridors and so on absolutely i mean that's that's our whole goal and that's what uh, motivates us more and more you know there are areas where um, we we wouldn't have tigers species like the tigers and now tigers are breeding in in one landscape we very intensively work is called as the kaveri and mmls landscape and this landscape was ravaged by a bandit for over 3 decades called virapan and we started and he was killed way back in 2005 and uh, after that we started working in that landscape and uh, we almost didn't have documents of tigers in that landscape but now tigers are breeding in that landscape and that's the most satisfying thing for a conservationist i'm sure you would also enjoy that you would agree and enjoy about it to see animals coming back to a landscape which was ravaged for various reasons i think that's the most satisfying and the rewarding thing for us i'm sure it's like a beaver coming back to your land in somerset the first time i saw a tiger pug mark in kaveri uh, landscape i was totally thrilled i can't explain the thrill and the joy i had and that's what you all work and survive for right you know that small pleasure of seeing animals coming back to the area where you had not documented those animals and that's your whole life's mission yeah absolutely the the joy of species returning to their former range is really um it's pure magic you know the, we, we talked about beavers when we last met you know the keystone of all keystone species in the northern hemisphere you know, water is life and beavers by damming up the little streams and creeks in a river system hold water in the landscape and the magic that comes with that is really something to see i hope i'll show you sometime this summer we had glowworms um for the first time in our valley oh. and seemingly as a direct result of the return of beavers because the glowworms are all strung on a dark night in the summer above the beaver wetlands that have been created so i i i couldn't agree more and, and we have wild boar back now in britain which is another species that plays a keystone role as a gardener in the forest and mm-hmm. been extinct for a long time but they're now in good numbers in the west and south of Scotland in the Welsh borders and and even a few clinging on in the southwest and starting to expand so the the return of these species really is um incredibly important and the the one earth foundation produced a report recently which suggested that restoring just 20 species to their former range would have the potential to restore a third of the world's landmass to ecological health and they used examples such as returning beavers in the northern hemisphere returning bison to the great american grasslands and so on yes that's the magic ben that's the magic you know when you said glow worms you know it need not be tigers all the time it need not be elephants all the time as small as a glow worm also brings in the same amount of joy i can see that when you say talking about glow worms coming back to because of beavers you know that's the spark in a conservationist you know that's what 
is a true conservationist you you mentioned about lowworm you know it may not be the most charismatic it's not a gorilla it's not a, a you know forest elephant um it's not the bison it's not the yellowstone wolf but a glowworm itself brings so much of joy you know that's the magic of conservation when you allow natural processes to happen you need not reintroduce them but you do allow natural processes to come back and then all these pleasures and all this joy and all this wonderful life forms come back it can be glowworms it can be butterflies it can be beetles all the way up to elephants you know that's the pleasure of seeing animals back you know birds singing back in your farmland birds you know songbirds coming back uh, to rural britain or to any other part of the world you know that's the pleasure of getting back it's called life you know that's that's what life is all about Yes, absolutely. And and I don't know if you've ever seen footage of a dolphin or a fish swimming through bioluminescence in the sea on a dark night. But this is what what keystone species do on land. When when you when you restore native cattle or beavers or wild boar to a British landscape, it's like they create life in their wake. It's it's like the bioluminescence that follows them. And and glowworms are a very beautiful illustration of that. We suddenly saw these flickering lights hanging like magic above the beaver wetland and it was quite a moment. Has the joy of wildlife returning in abundance in the landscapes that you're working in been something that's been shared by local communities? Now, are the local school children aware of what's happening around them? And and I guess more importantly, are they able to derive any economic and social prosperity and security from it? Yeah, it's a long drawn process. You know, you have two questions in in what you just mentioned. One is have local children enjoyed it you know i would like to say uh, unfortunately no uh, that's what one of our miki goals is we have established the first ever rural nature information center in the area we work it's all about wildlife it's a beautifully made nature information center called the holemati nature information center and um, till now we have had about 15000 kids who live along with tigers who live with elephants who have always seen leopards and uh, elephants and tigers as cattle lifters or as crop raiders unlike other people who look at elephants or uh, tigers as cuddly animals they look at the, the viewpoint of these kids are completely different and that's what we are trying to change you know the perspectives and the behavior and the attitudes and um, slowly there's a big change you know uh, especially when you start demonstrating what is in their backyards which they they had not seen it in a positive light all these years and when you show benefits how it benefits them directly you know the bees coming back or the bees pollinating their pumpkins or their farmland other other kind of crop species uh, which they would have missed because they due to perhaps some amount of lack of awareness so that's one of our main goals you know bringing back the value of wildlife to people who really suffer the cost of conservation and of course economic incentives make a huge difference as well you know when i was in india last i i felt an increase in prosperity as i approached ranthambore national park for example as if somehow this this large area of intact nature was a generator of wealth and prosperity for communities surrounding it is that the case where you work that that nature can lift people up in an economic sense absolutely you know when when we started our research work in this landscape one of the things we saw was degradation of habitat due to collection of firewood by people who were using firewood uh, for cooking and also for heating water so we designed a way that 
we would provide them alternatives for firewood. And what we also demonstrated to them is how much more productive they can be if they stop going into the forest to collect firewood. We did a survey of 5,000 people and we, we, we saw that people were especially women were spending 800 hours a year just collecting firewood. 800 hours would actually translate to about 32 days in a year just collecting firewood. And uh, we, when we provided them with uh, alternatives, now they're using those 800 hours to other productive activities like farming or for agricultural labor or for small businesses or small dairy production activities. And that has made a huge difference in their lives. So the economics has you know stopping collecting firewood has brought in more prosperity for them and also for their families and also some of the unintended and also some of the most surprising benefits was that women telling that they are able to send their kids to school on time now because earlier cooking on firewood would take them hours and now it takes only about 20 minutes and the children are able to go to school on time these are all unseen benefits of wildlife conservation we are doing it because they were collecting firewood the tree species which were fed by elephants and sloth bear and samba deer and other that was our goal but we never realized just by trying to help wildlife we could help girl children go to school we could help boys go to school on time and there could be economic prosperity just by providing a small alternative. You know, these are the magic which we never understand. Yes, Sanjay, you use the term we. When you talk about we, you mean Holomati Foundation. Can you tell me a little bit about the foundation and what its mission is and how it came about? It's a small grassroots organization, but uh, we have enormous amount of uh, background of having on-ground successes in the state of Karnataka. Uh, we have helped the uh, government uh, defragment a lot of wildlife habitats, like you know, diverting uh, highways, big highways from protected areas, so that wildlife get more spaces. We have also ensured that whenever we work on conservation, we do it in a way which is socially acceptable politically feasible and scientifically evaluated. So though science is important part of our work, we try to ensure that we work with a vast variety of stakeholders, which is very important in conservation. It is not just wildlife as a science. It is not just about local communities, but you also need to work with political leaders. You need to work with social leaders. You need to work with media personnel. You need to work with religious leaders. You need to work with a lot of different kinds of uh, stakeholders who both directly and indirectly benefit from conservation in different ways. And uh, you need to ensure that you work with the system. That's what I mean. You need not be an activist. You need not be just a scientist. If you have flexibility of listening to people and working and waiting at the doorsteps of political leaders, the change you bring in is enormous. That is what Holemati specializes in. We go beyond science. We go beyond the regular stakeholders of conservation. And we evaluate it scientifically. That's, that's what is key for us. So Holomati Foundation is active in these two mega landscapes in India, and it's it's a large cohort of people working on all these different issues from poaching to human wildlife conflict to alternatives to firewood from the forest to uh, the protection of corridors and, and so on. How is the organization funded? Are you, are you funded by the government of India, by the state of Karnataka or, or by philanthropy? 
We largely rely on philanthropy, though the state of Karnataka supports us in a small way to work on science and also on human wildlife conflict. But we largely rely on philanthropy. Thankfully, a lot of people, especially people from Britain, the British Asian Trust, the Elephant Family, the Whitley Fund for Nature, um, these are all some of our biggest supporters uh, in the past and also in currently. And some of the individuals like uh, Ganesh Ramani, you know, Ruth and a lot of other people, even in Britain, are big supporters of our work. And that's what keeps us our work going. And of course, you have this wonderful tailwind of working among communities who keep harmony with nature at the absolute core of their spiritual and their practical lives. And that's why I've often thought that that India uh, can show the world how to have uh, development and prosperity and stability with a large population in conjunction with um, respect and harmony with nature. That, that is true also of the um, so-called forest people within your within your patch, the indigenous communities. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. I mean, I'm an indigenous Kannadiga, you know, I'm come, I come from the state of Karnataka, I'm born here, I speak my local language, Kannada, and that's what makes you very accepted uh, in the community. You know, you walk into a community, you know how it works, and you speak the language, and that makes a huge difference. But of course, the tolerance of people is very important. The commitment of government is extremely important. I know, you know, people are very averse to work with governments, not just in India, perhaps in many other parts of the world. But uh, you can't change that system. You need to work with the system. That's what is very important. So governments, it's not that every government is corrupt and every government official is disinterested in in good things for the society. There are a lot of people within the government and a lot of government uh, uh, bureaucrats who are interested and who are committed to to good causes of of the society. It's just that we need to know how to work with them, how to raise their interest in conservation every time you need not go to a political leader saying that you want to protect tiger you would speak to him in a language that he understands and respects you know you when you go to when i go to a political leader i talk about water security for his constituency that's what triggers his interest when i talk about nature conservation to some people you you have a different pitch altogether. That's why I always keep saying outreach is an extremely important part of conservation. You need to speak the language. You need to tell them what is the value and you need to tell it in a way that they not just understand but also appreciate. You know, that's where communication and outreach is such an important part of it. And I'm sure your podcast also does it very effectively. Uh, Sanjay, you mentioned the bandit um, the famous bandit uh, who for 30 years ravaged the landscape as a poacher with, with a network of poachers. With, with the capture of that bandit, and has that brought an end to poaching in your landscape or is this an ongoing enforcement process? See, he used to poach a lot of elephants for the tusk and sandalwood. And of course, that has come down with his demise, the infamous um, uh, bandit called Virapan. But Poaching certainly continues to be a big threat. We just had a a scientific paper which came out in a very reputed journal called The Biological Conservation. And there we have demonstrated how snares are impacting endangered species. Uh, So we have scientifically provided data that snares are impacting even non-target species. Those snares are set for catching uh, ungulates 
for consumption and also local sales but they are also impacting species like elephants doles which are the indian asiatic wild dogs the leopard the tiger um, the sloth bears and several other species so certainly poaching continues to be a threat and that needs to be addressed in different forms perhaps you know educating communities is an important way important way forward but also enforcement is very important in this uh, with this threat Sanjay, which which is a priority species for you right now? Which creature would you like to see return in uh, in in a former abundance? Um, I, I've always had a fascination with the gore, the the Indian bison, and the, the European bison. Of course, was down to just a dozen or even fewer individuals, and is now recovering quite nicely in Europe. We have probably ten thousand or so bison uh, from Ukraine all the way to the Iberian Peninsula, and even a small herd now in Kent in the south of England. Can you tell me a little bit about that species and about whichever species is most exciting for you right now? You you picked up a very nice species. It's the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the ungulate world. The Indian god is really like you know Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's but it doesn't go to gym. It doesn't use any of the protein supplements. There's nothing which has to uh, support it to pump up its biceps. You know such a massive species, one ton weighing ungulate, and survives only on eating grass and leaves and fruits you know that's the lesson for the world like you don't need protein supplements you perhaps don't need meat to have such massive biceps once you see a gore you really fall in love with that species you know you really picked up a wonderful species a brown coat shining with white stockings i think it's it's a perfect angulate according to me uh, i love that species i i love watching it it's majestic it's it's really bullish i wish the gore was the symbol of the new york stock exchange uh, rather than the bull sanjay i've always been fascinated by the gore the indian bison i once saw a small herd of them at a distance in periyar and um, i never forgot it and of course our, our own european bison was decimated in past centuries fewer than a dozen animals remained at the start of the 20th century and they've made a steady and quite impressive recovery there's probably 10000 bison now between ukraine and the iberian peninsula in fact, we even have our own herd of them here in England in Kent. I went to visit them during the during the summer. How is the gore doing in your landscape and and generally across its range? Um, see, gore is a very important keystone. It's an umbrella species because you really need large landscapes. It needs fodder. It needs fodder in good quantities, so it can't survive in small fragments of forest. It really needs contiguous habitats like the elephant does, and it's also a shy species. So it doesn't like in some areas of India, elephants survive amidst tea plantations and amidst coffee plantations but gar doesn't do very well in such disturbed habitats though they survive there so i would say uh, in the landscape we work there are anywhere between 500 to 800 gar especially in the kaveri mml hills landscape but across the country i'm sure there are about 20000 to 25000 gar still left in this country uh, but if you go to southeast asia gar's population has really decimated largely because of uh, hunting or poaching for the pot uh, you go to just across the country you go to myanmar or you go to places like thailand uh, indonesia the gore population is really less malaysia the gore population has really plummeted but that's key for recovery of um, uh, species like the tiger sanjay which species is in need of your particular attention right now there's a lot of species which i would love to see that they they do well in this country but one particular species which is 
I'm not sure if it continues to survive in this in this state of Karnataka, but the species is the caracal. Caracal survives in very small pockets in India, in Rajasthan and in Gujarat, but there are records, historical records of caracal being in Karnataka. And we've just started some work in northern part of Karnataka, and I don't know, you know, from our work, through our scientific work, if we ever get to document a caracal. I just love that species. That, that that's, a, that's a very graceful animal. It's a smaller cat, but a very graceful and you just love those ears, you know, with the tuft hair, tufty ears, you know, uh, ears. I've seen a caracal in, in Africa, but I would love to see caracals come back and do well in our country as well. It's one of those magnificent cats you can see in the wild, actually. Sanjay, you're a complete hero. I feel so lucky to have spent this time with you. You are leading an effort to protect and restore life across two of the most important biodiverse landscapes in the world. If anyone listening to this podcast wants to visit one of these landscapes, what's the best way to do that? Come down to Karnataka. We always would love to have people who are interested in wildlife. People are very open and there are wonderful places where people can even uh, walk, trek um, or go on a hike and watch gore. You know, especially Ben, if you want to watch gore, you should go to Kudremuk National Park and on foot. I'll tell you very honestly, watching large mammals on foot is the most exciting thing that can happen to you. You know, if you watch gore at a distance of 20 meters from you and you are able to see it and uh, hear its breathing, I'll, I'll tell you that's the best moment. I Once I was walking in Rantabo National Park uh, doing some work early morning and uh, I, I and a friend of mine, we were walking and then I just thought I saw something on my left and I stopped and um, through the edge of my eyes or left eye I saw there was actually a tiger sitting right there about 10 meters away from us so I squeezed my friend's hand and I said whispered to him saying tiger tiger and we stopped both of us froze and this tiger was about 10 to 12 meters away from us sitting and gazing at us and eyes looked into its eye I think I'll that's the best moment I've ever seen I mean ever in my life you know watching seeing a tiger 10 meters away from you and it washed at us and uh, I could actually hear its breathing you know we were so close and that moment was so exciting the tiger stood there and we stood there we watched each other for a short period and then I took my eye off the animal and I knew that she was staring at us and I knew what was happening because I could watch it through the corner of my eye and uh, I think wildlife understands you. If you mean no harm and if you're very calm when you see wildlife at such close quarter, I think they get your vibes. They get your good vibes. They get, they get a very positive vibe. So this female uh, tiger which was sitting there watched us for a few moments. Then she very slowly got up, walked away for about 20 meters, stood there and I was looking at her. She looked back at us as though perhaps very disdainfully, you know, it was an early morning she, and she was sunning herself. It's in Rajasthan, uh, very cold in January morning and she must have been sunning and she must have thought what a you know horrible human being who disturbed me uh, my early morning sunning and then she quietly you know walked away from us and, I, and I, in a few minutes she disappeared into the bushes I'll tell you watching that pumps you up forever you know that moment I can never forget that that uh, I can hear her even today and those are the kinds of moments which will pump you up forever to do whatever possible in your lifetime or whatever little possible in your lifetime to do uh, to save these charismatic animals in, in, in your backyard. And uh, 
as you rightly said in the beginning you need several lifetimes to enjoy them but also to save them sanjay thank you so much for for joining me on the podcast thank you man thank you for hosting me and it's been a pleasure talking to you I feel so privileged to have shared a stage earlier this year with Sanjay here in London and to have spent this time speaking with him. Sanjay is one of a few inspiring conservation rewilding leaders that are making India a real example of how you can have development, prosperity and lots of people, lots of pressure on the land and still lots of habitat, lots of wildlife woven in. I really think India offers an example to the rest of the world and Sanjay's project is is one of the best in in the whole of southern India. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd be very grateful if you go onto whatever platform you use, spread the word, leave us a review. Next time I'm going to be talking to Dragana Meluznich from the Nature Conservancy. Dragana was born in Belgrade and is working on a project known as the Blue Heart of Europe, which is an effort to save an area of the Balkans comprised of wild free-flowing rivers, some of which even flow turquoise. These rivers have been threatened by dams and other development and Dragoner is leading the campaign to have them protected in perpetuity. 